Hello, everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for all of you today. Liz Carlisle will be my guest. She's the author of a great new book called Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. And I'll invite her on in just a little bit. But first, of course, I want to share with you some things going on in the news, some ways you can take action, and of course, share my weekly recipe with all of you. So um, first, I want to share with you that finally, this weekend, Saturday, hopefully, is the Long Island CSA Fair. And the reason I say hopefully is because there is the possibility that we may have rain. Earlier in the week, when I wrote my newsletter the weather forecast was beautiful for saturday but that's one of the issues when you plan an outdoor event you just never know so sunday is the rain date but hopefully we'll get it in on saturday um i'm watching the weather closely but the csa fair is an opportunity for um people consumers to come out and meet farmers who are running a community supported agricultural program at their farm and what that means is that you partner with the farmer and you purchase at the beginning of the season a share of everything that they harvest and then every week for the whole summer you feel like you're getting a free box of vegetables and it's a wonderful way to be part of a community to know that you're getting the freshest organic vegetables you can possibly get um, and you get them every week but one of the reasons we bring everybody together so you can really look around and compare the different programs, they're all a little different. Some you go to the farm to pick up the vegetables. Some have drop-off points. Some also partner with people that um, produce cheese or flowers um, or even chicken or eggs. So they all have different. Some offer half shares. A half share can be getting a box every other week or it can be half a portion every week. And so you really have to know what will work for you and your family best and find the CSA that will be most convenient for you because convenience, as we all know, is really an issue too. If you have to drive a half an hour to pick up your vegetables, it might not work. So come on out to the CSA fair. We also have some food trucks coming. We have a Green Street food truck, which is all vegan and a pizza food truck. We also have a knife sharpening truck. So bring your dull knives and come get them sharpened so that you can cut up all these delicious vegetables you're gonna be getting. And we have some live music coming. So um, it should be a really fun day. Hopefully the weather will cooperate and we hope to see all of you or many of you there. Um, we also actually have some um, uh, nonprofits tabling. I know our friends from Food and Water Watch will be there, Cornell Cooperative Extension will be there um, and some others. So it should be really a great day. I posted in my newsletter, a way you can take action this week. We're trying to um, get our legislators and the USDA to really pay attention to the amount of sugar that's in school meals. I mean, we've made a lot of improvement in school meals, but it has a long way to go. And right now there's still way too much sugar. Um, a typical school lunch might be, you know, a low fat chocolate milk and a box of cereal or some frozen French toast with pancake syrup, which has no maple syrup in it let me remind you, it's just corn syrup with a little artificial flavoring. Um, so it's really horrible. And it's the whole day's worth of the amount of sugar they're supposed to have for a whole day. And they have it just in breakfast. And so, you know, it's wonderful that school food is now including breakfast and giving kids breakfast. But 
we need to do better. The breakfast cannot be filled with sugar, which just, you know, winds kids up anyway and makes them overactive and it's just not good for them. Um, and right now, nine out of 10 schools exceed the dietary guidelines for Americans limit on sugar in their breakfast and seven out of 10 exceeded for lunch. So I know we can do better than that. Not to mention that the dietary guidelines for Americans is based on a 200 pound man. It's not based on a 120 or 30 pound woman, nor is it based on a 50 pound kid. So um, that is a whole issue in of itself, but we really need to do better. So there's a, um, a petition on my website to tell the USDA to cut the sugar from school meals. And if you could sign that petition, I'd really appreciate it. And then also in the news, um, you know, Tuesday was um, World Water Day. And, you know, I was looking at, you know, the issue in water pollution. I've been writing about that forever with the plastics in the water and the pollution. But last week marked the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act. And there were a bunch of experts that got together. And after evaluating over 700,000 miles of rivers and streams across the country, they concluded that half of those waters are too polluted to fish or swim in. And that agriculture was the largest source of water pollution in this country. So the runoff from all the chemicals that we're putting into our soil is so responsible for the pollution in our waters and we need to do better. And so um, take a look at the articles that I highlighted in my newsletter. And you know, anytime you have an opportunity to write to a legislator or sign a petition to help clean up our water, please do that too. You know, I always talk about how we all can't do everything, but we all can do something and we all have to get involved. Um, climate change is coming, you know, the condition of our planet is really a very important issue. And um, we'll be talking about that more when my guest, uh, Liz Carlisle, comes on. Um, but anyway, please take a look at that article. And now I want to share with you this week's recipe. It's an Asian stir fry with tofu and peanuts. And, um, you know, our diet is also such an important way that we can participate in the climate crisis. And, um, you know, making better food choices, not only is better for the, our own health, but it's better for the planet, for the animals, all the way around. So the more uh, plant-based plant you can eat, the better it is for you and for the planet. So anyway, this Asian stir fry is really great. You're gonna start with a block of extra firm tofu that you can cut into cubes. And I like to dry, the, dry my tofu between two dish towels. So you can either dry it before you cut them into cubes or cut them into cubes and then put them between two dish towels and just slightly press to remove as much of the um, water from the tofu as you can. Then you want one onion that you're gonna cut in half and slice into slivers. Two carrots that you're gonna cut up any which way that you want, um, either julienne strips or into chunks. Two Japanese eggplants that you also are gonna cut into, um, into bite-sized pieces. And you wanna make them big enough so that even after they're cooked, they hold together and you really have a, a piece of eggplant. You don't wanna cut them too small and they'll just fall apart. Three tablespoons of grated ginger, two tablespoons of minced garlic, one stalk of celery diced, one small head of broccoli rabe. Um, if you don't like broccoli rabe, you can certainly substitute broccoli two cups of Napa cabbage, two cups of bok choy. And that's, I measure it after I cut it up into um, slivers. One red pepper diced olive oil for stir frying, 
four tablespoons of tamari or more to taste, two tablespoons of Aji Marin, which is a sweet rice wine, cooking wine. Um, and also look at the ingredients. Kikoman puts out an Aji Marin that is really just corn syrup um, or glucose syrup. And it's not what you want. You want to buy Eden brand Aji Marin, which is really sweet rice wine. And all it has in it is rice and some seaweed. And it's really excellent. Two tablespoons of dark sesame oil, one teaspoon of hot sesame oil or red pepper flakes, and that's optional if you want to make it a little spicy, one cup of lightly salted peanuts, and a quarter cup of chopped cilantro, which is also optional. Some people don't like uh, cilantro. You can certainly substitute parsley if you'd like. So I first set up a wok or a saucepan to steam the eggplant and carrots. And you want to steam those just until they're soft. And I do that ahead of time, just so that it, the stir fry comes together a little quicker, because that can be steaming. Those are the things that take a little longer. And also, if you stir fry eggplant, it absorbs so much oil and becomes really oily. So stir, steaming it first really reduces the amount of oil you need to use. So I also am gonna prepare a cookie sheet with some parchment paper and spray it lightly with oil. And I'm gonna to toss the tofu cubes with a tablespoon of minced garlic and a tablespoon of the grated ginger and lay that out onto the greased cookie sheet and bake that in the oven um, while it's gold, till it's golden brown, about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, then after it's golden brown, you're gonna splash it with some tamari and two tablespoons of the mirin and put it back in the oven and for about another five minutes, just so that the, um, the tofu and the mirin can kind of caramelize on the outside of the tofu and make it really flavorful. Um, and those things happen, like the steaming of the eggplant and the tofu can happen while you're stir frying. So it all comes together really quickly because those parts are happening separately and they take a little bit more time if you were to try to do it all in just one walk. So meanwhile, while <clears throat> the tofu is cooking and the eggplant and carrots are steaming, you're gonna cover the bottom of a wok with some oil. And when the oil's hot, you can add the onions and cook that for a few minutes, then add the celery and the red pepper. Add the remaining garlic and ginger and um, stir that up. Then add the broccoli rob. Continue cooking on medium high heat for about five minutes or so. Add the napa cabbage and the bok choy, just until that starts to wilt. And if it starts sticking on the bottom of the pan, instead of adding more oil, just add a tablespoon at a time of some water. And that um, separates the sticking part of the wok. And um, you, know, you won't have to add any more, water, any more oil. So add just a little water. Um, continue cooking that. Then you can add back in the carrots and the eggplant that you've steamed along with the tofu. Add the, um, the remaining aji marin and the tamari and stir that up. Add just a little bit of the dark sesame oil um, and or the hot sesame oil if you're gonna use that and mix that up. And then at the very end, you're just gonna add the peanuts and the cilantro. And that's it, it comes together really fast. It's a great midweek or it's a great anytime recipe. It's really delicious. You can serve it with some um, sesame noodles or brown rice or whatever you'd like as your start with that. And it's a really wonderful meal. And now it's my pleasure to introduce all of you to Liz Carlisle. She is an assistant professor at the Environmental Studies Program at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where she teaches courses on food and farming. She was born and raised in Montana, and she got hooked on agriculture while working as an aide to organic farmer and U.S. Senator John Tester, 
which led to a decade of research and writing collaborations with farmers in our home state. She has written three books about regenerative farming and agroecology, Mental Underground in 2015, Grain by Grain in 2019 with co-author Bob Quinn, and her most recent book, which I invited her on to talk about, is Healing Grounds, Climate Justice and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. And prior to her career as a writer and academic, she spent several years touring rural America as a country singer, which is really fascinating. So welcome, Liz. Thank you so much, Bhavani. It's great to be here. And I, I must say, I'm already um, very hungry, having just heard you describe that delicious stir fry. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. <laughs> and uh, do try it. It's, you know, it's just so easy. I mean, those are the stir fries are things I can just make with my eyes closed, and they just are so delicious. And um, yeah, they come together really well. So anyway, all the helpful for, tips. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, oh, dang. Tofu in the oven, steam the eggplant yeah. and the carrot while I'm doing the other things. That's great. That's just what I need to it's hear. It is. time saving. <laughs> yeah. It's really time saving. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned a little bit how you got into the, your career from being a singer, but maybe you can just tell us a little bit more. Like how did, you know, it's, it's so different than uh, obviously being an entertainer. How did you really get involved in agriculture and your passion for regenerative agriculture and food justice. Yeah. I mean, the truth is, I think it was really my grandmother. Um, my grandmother lost our family farm in the Dust Bowl. She was born and raised on a farm, um, you know, not that long after the homesteading era, really. Um, and uh, had, by all accounts, this uh, incredible childhood, you know, really deeply connected to land. But then um, you know, before she was even in high school, they lost that farm in the Dust Bowl. And um, I always really admired my grandmother's sort of grounded wisdom. And it seemed to me that it came from her land connection. And I really wanted that for myself. And at the same time, the stories that she told about that Dust Bowl period were just so incredibly sobering, you know, about how her family and many, many other families lost their livelihoods, lost their homes, um, just had this sort of complete trauma and disruption of life. And that that happened because, um, you know, they had all mismanaged the soil. They had all overplowed that soil. Um, I think later I started asking questions about, man, why did those families end up there anyway? You know, why did these, um, you know, in many cases, you know, Europeans who were kind of at the bottom of the class pyramid get shipped out to the North American continent to try to manage this indigenous land that was totally unfamiliar. So that was kind of the social layer of it. But she got me really excited about the idea that if we managed our land better and if we managed our soil better, that we would have better lives, that we would have more stable communities. And so that that kind of planted the seed for me. And I was always really interested in hearing the stories of other people like my grandmother who had that kind of land connection. And in college, I majored in folklore and I was really focused on that kind of rural American experience. And I also loved music. And so that became the outlet for me to try to share some of these stories and what you know, what it had to do with being human, you know, things that I was learning from these land stewards. And so that did ultimately lead to this career as a country singer. And then as I was, as I was traveling around communities where agriculture was such a big part of the culture and the livelihood and the economy, I kept hearing 
very similar stories from people all over the United States. Both, you know, they had these great land stewardship traditions and these beautiful visions for what their work meant to them. And it was things like, you know, clean water, like we were just talking about, you know, at the 50th anniversary of the, the Clean Water Act, they really wanted to steward land and water and grow healthy food for their communities. But I kept hearing these similar things about the barriers in agricultural policy and the structure of the farm sector that were getting in the way of people practicing land stewardship. And that um, was, of course, quite frustrating. <laughs> I just wanted to tell yeah. these kind of beautiful three and a half minute stories. Um, but then this organic farmer from my home state, John Tester, ran for the U.S. Senate and he won and nobody expected him to win. He unseated a three term incumbent who had a ton of money, who was totally, you know, in bed with agribusiness and had, a, you know, the healthy campaign coffers to go with that. And this guy, you know, John Tester had been a school board member and, uh, you know, served in the state legislature, but was not a, yeah, it was a big surprise. And it was very inspiring because he talked about how organic farming and the green economy was our future as a state in Montana and the future of our region. And that this had actually saved his farm um, and that he saw it being the ticket to having vibrant rural communities, that we'd get out of this extractive path that we'd been on with mining and fossil fuels and extractive agriculture, and we'd get on this more, he wasn't calling it regenerative at the time, but that was the idea. And so I was so inspired that I switched careers and I applied for a job in the tester office and I got it. And I was a legislative correspondent. And for any of your listeners who's ever, you know, worked on the Hill or have, you know, friends or relatives who have, that means you're looking at correspondence um, from constituents in your issue areas. And mine were agriculture and natural resources. And you're kind of feeding it to the policy team. You're this sort of liaison between the constituents in your issue area and the folks, you know, in, in the Senate office who are making policy. And so I had all these incredible conversations and emails and letters with the organic farming community in Montana, who were, of course, very excited um, that, you know, one of their own was, was in the Senate. Right. And I got these great invitations to see people's farms and they described their crop rotations and how they were planting soil building cover crops and all this stuff. And I was just like, wow, I didn't realize this was this whole movement and I was raised in Montana, but I was raised on the Western side of the state, which is kind of thought of as like, you know, progressive college towns and people excited about wilderness and tourism, Glacier Park. Um, I'm from Missoula. I had no idea there were these kind of homegrown environmentalists on farms in Eastern Montana. And mm -hmm. I was so excited about it that I ultimately went to graduate school to do a research project working with these farmers to kind of understand what they were doing and the history of their movement. And that's kind of how I ended up part of this organic farming and regenerative farming movement um, and, and having opportunities to talk with more farmers. And So you know, what did you study for your master's? Was it um, your own research project? Yeah, so I actually went, I did a PhD in the geography program at UC Berkeley. And so I came in um, knowing that what I was going to study was the organic farming movement in Montana uh, for my dissertation project. But then, you know, I also got to connect with this incredible cohort of fellow graduate students who were interested in agroecology and the political economy of agriculture, 
all over the world. And so I got exposed to movements that had, you know, a similar focus around food sovereignty um, in all parts of the United States, but also other parts of the world. And I think that gave me a better sense for how the struggles of farmers that I knew in my own state were situated within this larger global political economy of agriculture. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I always love asking my guests how they got to where they are because, you know, you plan your life and your life kind of like plans you, you know, you don't really, you just follow one step in front of the other and your life leads you so often where you're meant to be. Um, and it's not necessarily where you thought you were going to be, you know, when you set off um, to college. And so, yeah, it's always fascinating. I love hearing people's personal stories. Um, so let's talk about your book. Um, you know, you you connect so much with agriculture and climate change, which is, you know, relatively newer, a newer thought process, but not really newer amongst the grassroots people, but in the public arena sphere, um, really connecting agriculture to climate change is, since I've been doing this for so long, is relatively new, you know, in the last 10 years, let's say, really people looking at agriculture as a um you know as one of the contributors to climate the climate crisis but also as a possible remedy and a way to uh, mitigate some of the climate issues we're dealing with so maybe you can um <clears throat> uh, start by talking about what your connection is or what you see as the connection with agriculture and climate change and then we can go from there into the book yeah. I mean, this has been a big motivating factor for me throughout my career, too. I was amazed to learn that agriculture and the food system is responsible for somewhere between a quarter and a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a really big part of sort of the climate footprint. And there's sort and of- And is that worldwide or just in this country? That's worldwide. Um, but I, I would suggest that we in the United States and the agricultural system that we have promoted, we've had an outsized impact on that statistic. And there's kind of three major culprits. A lot of the carbon emissions that come from agriculture are from deforestation and from other forms of land use change where um, natural ecosystems and native vegetation are removed to make way for things like, um, you know, cattle and palm oil plantations in places like Brazil and Indonesia are kind of hot right. spots of this, but it happens all over and it happens in the United States too. So deforestation is one major culprit. Another one is methane emissions. That has a lot to do with sort of the current livestock paradigm and concentrated animal feeding operations. Some of the methane comes directly from the animals themselves when they burp, but a lot of it actually comes from their manure and the way in which it gets concentrated in these massive, you know, slurries and lagoons in concentrated animal feeding operations. So methane is a, a greenhouse gas that actually warms the climate much faster than carbon dioxide. And in the short term, it's really, really concerning because it accelerates the process of climate change. And another greenhouse gas that's like that is nitrous oxide. I think it's uh, like 300 times more warming than carbon dioxide. It's another one of these that really accelerates things in the short term. And that one is actually a big issue in industrial agriculture because there's so much synthetic nitrogen fertilizer being applied to farm fields in places like the U.S. Midwest, way in excess of what plants can take up. 
And unlike the way plants normally get their nitrogen biologically, say from compost or a soil building cover crop, when they're getting it from this synthetic nitrogen fertilizer, um, it's all at once. <laughs> and so biological systems, it's kind of a slow release nitrogen as the plants are ready in their life cycle to take it up. But if you apply a whole bunch of fertilizer all at once synthetic, um, it tends to run off some of it. And we know, like you were just mentioning the issues in our waterways, but some of that nitrogen also ends up polluting our atmosphere as nitrous oxide. It actually volatilizes into the atmosphere. Um, so those three greenhouse gases, actually carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide all together add up to a huge climate problem from agriculture, where it's currently a quarter to a third of greenhouse gas emissions. And then you think about the ways in which food waste contributes to that. You think about the ways in which, you know, really, really increasing percentages of meat consumption as part of diet increase all these factors I've just told you about. And it, it looks like we're on a trajectory to actually make things worse. But on the flip side, um, you have regenerative agriculture and you have all of these farmers all around the world who are working right now to shift agriculture from a climate problem to a climate solution. And one of the things people point to is the fact that through these conversions to industrial agriculture, a lot of agricultural land around the world has lost carbon that used to be in the soil. So when you clear the natural vegetation and you plow, that releases a lot of carbon. And then when you don't have plant roots in the ground all year round, you're continually releasing um, often this nitrous oxide. So plants kind of hold those nutrients in the soil and industrial agriculture keeps the soil bare through the winter um, and sometimes even for whole growing seasons. So this, you know, it's suggested, well, all this carbon has historically flowed out of the soil. If we worked with plants in the right way, we could restore that carbon into the soil. We could actually bring it out of the atmosphere and back down into the soil. And that's become yeah. the kind of rallying cry of regenerative agriculture is to use plants and a particular way of working with plants and land to actually bring carbon back into the soil and sequester it there. Right, right. You know, but to, you know, in farming to make up for the rainforest that they're cutting down, I mean, it's just, you know, those, those rainforests just sequester so much and they're just, you know, like you said, plowing them down, or destroying them for mostly for cattle, right? For, you know, not for growing more food, but very often just for the grazing of the cattle or growing the food for the cattle. But, you know, the amount of, um, <clears throat> the amount of agriculture we need to do just to feed the amount of animals that everybody eats is just, a huge, huge problem in itself. Um, so why does regenerative agriculture need to be coupled with racial and land justice to truly address climate change? Because that's a whole another jump, right? Um, you know, I think, you know, the equation of sequestering carbon versus releasing it, everyone can kind of follow that. But I think when we try to bring in land justice and social justice into this conversation, a lot of people go, wait, wait, how does that have anything to do with it, right? So maybe you can set, shed some light on that for my listeners, because it really is such a huge, huge issue. And, um, you know, the amount of farmers that are people of color is so reduced um, 
compared to, especially in this country, compared to white farmers, it's just, um, you know, statistically such a huge problem and we need to figure out a way to fix that. So maybe you can shed some light for us. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the first things that really struck me as I was researching this book is that a lot of the specific practices that the regenerative agriculture movement is really promoting and is really excited about right now. So these would be things like soil building cover crops, where you plant something on your land, often in the off season, so that there are those roots in the ground and you specifically plant something that will feed the soil with nutrients and carbon. Um, so that's one practice that regenerative agriculture enthusiasts are quite excited about. Then there's regenerative grazing, where you sort of mimic uh, the way that native herbivores would have moved across the landscape as they were evolving with the native vegetation. And so you manage cattle in a way that is informed by that, such that you um, help that vegetation regrow better and, and build carbon. Um, there's also a lot of excitement about reducing tillage, acknowledging that tillage processes um, disrupt the soil microorganisms and the ecosystem in the soil that's building and storing carbon. So, you know, all those practices are things that I first heard about from these farmers in Montana um, as a young person, just first getting excited about how regenerative agriculture could help my home state and communities near to me. But something that I learned over and over again in researching this book is that all of those practices actually have their roots in the ancestral traditions of indigenous communities and communities of color. So um, communities that are indigenous to this continent and also communities uh, that are indigenous to other continents, but are here for a variety of reasons. So you mentioned um, the experience of enslaved African people who were brought to the United States to build, um, you know, what is now the food system that we know. Um, there was an indigenous African food system that included all of these regenerative practices, um, you know, also an indigenous regenerative agriculture in other parts of the Americas. Um, and a lot of those folks, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, were sort of pushed off of their land and ended up being workers in the United States on industrial farms in places like California. California, where I now live and work. So I was really struck by how regenerative agriculture really started with these indigenous practices. And in that context, it's more than just a set of individual techniques. All those individual techniques are actually situated within these much deeper and more holistic philosophies of how to relate to land and how to raise food in partnership with land with these kind of reciprocal relationships to the land and to the plants and the animals. So there's this kind of ongoing cycle of sustainability. So that was kind of the first lesson for me is that regenerative agriculture is rooted in these ancestral traditions of indigenous communities and communities of color. And the way in which they are practicing it is deeper than this way in which, um, you know, some folks in the European American farming community are sort of first learning these individual practices. And then the second lesson for me was just to ask myself, you know, why do we have an agriculture that extracts carbon out of the soil? You know, why would that be the way you would go about raising food? <laughs> it's a very basic question. I think sometimes it's taken for granted in the concept of agriculture or farming in the United States that that's what you're doing is you're taking resources out of the land and you're taking them somewhere else and somebody sells something and somebody makes money. 
Um, but when I really thought about where that came from and I started kind of reading historically, um, I realized that the reason we have extraction of carbon and the reason we have an extractive model of agriculture is that that was the playbook of colonization. You know, that's what you do to land if you do not consider it your home, if you consider it this sort of store of resources to plunder, you know, and that was that was the mindset of those early European explorers and colonists was that the North American continent was the storehouse of resources to plunder. And they extracted from the land and they extracted from the people. And that process has played out over and over and over again. Um, you know, with genocide of indigenous peoples and indigenous food systems, with uh, the enslavement of Africans, with the way in which farm workers have been treated. And so the extraction of carbon is part and parcel of this larger set of extractive processes. And if we really want to solve the climate problem in agriculture, we have to tackle that whole extractive logic. We can't just insert a couple of individual practices and think that's going to write the carbon puzzle. We have to actually shift to these reciprocal relationships with land. We have to shift our society's relationship with land. And that means we need to heal those colonial processes, including the ways in which they've affected humans. So we, we're at this point now where 98% of agricultural land in this country is white-owned, and there's all of these indigenous communities and communities of color that really want to practice these deep regenerative agricultures that you know have been traditions in their communities for hundreds, thousands of years in some cases. And so I think one of the most important steps we need to take is to ensure that those communities have access to land in order to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think so much comes back to what you, you mentioned, you know, the connection of all the different pieces, you know, it's like when you, you know, in anything in our society, you know, it's like when people take all these supplements and vitamins, you know, your body can only take in so much, right? And then it comes out in your urine and goes into the water system, right? It's like, you can't over, over indulging in anything, you can only use what you can use. And so, um, you know, and it's the same for the land. And, and yet, everything is also all connected. And so when you take little pieces of regenerative agriculture, the same way you take little pieces of, you know, oh, I'm going to do this for my health, but you don't do something else for your health. I mean, everything is, you know, everything is reciprocal. And the synchronicity of how things work in the universe is so magical that it's hard to put your hand on it because there's no way you can step back far enough to see all the connections that have to happen to make something happen right so so um you know when you talk about these deep root connections that indigenous people have to the land it is it's spiritual it's it's it goes deeper than just doing the right thing right it's you know it's a philosophy it's ingrained in them and so um you know to to make that shift seems really hard like so let's talk about how you you know in your book how you know you highlighted four four basic people right um you or four four ways that people are doing it let's see it was um Latrice Tatsy in Montana Prairie um Olivia Watkins in North Carolina who has a, is cultivating a whole mushroom forest um Nico Masumoto um in California and then you also talk about A.D. Guzman, who actually was doing a study and really researched many different farmers. 
So maybe you can um, share some of those stories with us and make some of those deeper connections for us and how we can think about shifting to really make a change. Yeah. Well, so I started, you know, speaking with regenerative agriculture leaders where I'm from in Montana. And I reached out to Latrice Tatsy, who's a member of Blackfeet Nation, which is an indigenous nation um, that's in present day Northwest Montana. And Latrice is really interesting. She's a scientist. She's a graduate student at Montana State University, and she's doing soils field work. But she's looking at the difference between buffalo pastures and cattle pastures in terms of their soil carbon sequestration and and other kind of soil health metrics. And her background is really interesting because she is a huge advocate for tribally directed buffalo restoration. Actually, her dad is too. So she's the second generation working to bring these buffalo relatives back home. That's the way she talks about it um, to their their home territory on Blackfeet Nation. And that's already underway. Um, There's a thriving um, Blackfeet Buffalo program. Um, but the work continues because there's not enough land that the Blackfeet people have control over in order to ensure that Buffalo are able to migrate across their their own traditional territory. Um, and so for them to have the ecological relationships with land that they historically did, they need to have that freedom to migrate across those distances. So Latrice has been part of, of bringing these buffalo home and she's studying the pasture where the buffalo are grazing. <laughs> but right next to that, she's studying a cattle pasture. And that's because she herself is also a cattle rancher. Her family has cattle. And a lot so when of, you say cattle, you're talking about just cows versus buffalo, right? Yeah, cows. cows. Okay. So, you know, a lot of indigenous people on the prairie are cattle ranchers, and that has been an adaptive strategy in the face of colonization and all the limitations that have been placed on indigenous people to continue in some way the land relationships that they've traditionally had. Um, so, you know, buffalo were uh, almost exterminated by white people on this continent, Um, but indigenous people who were also at the same time confined on reservations in many cases, what they were allowed to do um, was ranch cattle in some cases. And so that was a way to stay in connection with land and to stay in connection with that process of being connected to land through an animal. So anyway, um, there you can imagine there are some potential land use conflicts between ranchers and people who want to restore buffalo, <laughs> because ranchers are often concerned that if you bring the buffalo back, they're going to graze down all the forage, and there's not going to be any left for the cows that the buffalo are going to come and, and steal their forage. So Latrice is in this interesting position where she actually kind of sees both of those sides of the story, and she sees that her family, like many other indigenous families have, uh, you know, adapted cattle. And she also sees that there's this longstanding relationship with buffalo. And her view is actually that if, if you bring the buffalo back home, that their grazing pattern can actually teach everybody how to live in balance with this land. That if you have the buffalo on the landscape and you're watching them as they selectively graze across these long distances such that they graze down the vegetation, but that it has time to regrow and you have this mosaic of prairie plants and everything is sort of more productive and producing carbon underground, but also all this biodiversity above ground, that that becomes an example 
for people, um, including people raising cattle, but more broadly, that it brings back that wisdom of the Buffalo teachers that's always been a part of how Blackfeet people have lived on that landscape and, and that Buffalo helped to kind of teach this principle that you, um, you live off what's available at any given season. And so she really made me think about regenerative grazing quite differently, because I've heard a lot of regenerative grazing experts like Latrice, who are scientists, but not indigenous people, talk about how native herbivores are a model for how grazing can happen in a way that builds carbon and, you know, is healthy for the landscape. But they're normally talking about it as a conceptual model, like we're going to learn from this thing that happened in the past. But for Latrice, you actually bring back the buffalo themselves. The buffalo have to be there. They're a teacher on an ongoing basis. And as the climate changes, they're going to adapt their grazing behavior and they're going to continue to help inform, uh, you know, how humans live with the land. So that really struck me, that level of reciprocal relationship where it's not just a conceptual model, but it's actually bison relatives. You know, that's another level, I think, of, of connection to land. Mm -hmm. And um, these cattle ranches in Montana, are these cathos or are these um, people doing grass-fed raised, which, or is it both? Yeah. So another thing that um, Blackfeet Nation is working on, it's kind of a longer story, but they wrote this whole um, agriculture resource management plan um, that's filed with USDA. And they were actually the first tribal community to write their own. Normally, this kind of planning is sort of imposed on indigenous communities by federal agencies to kind of properly manage their resources, which is just this incredibly condescending, horrible thing that's happened, you know, for hundreds of years. Um, but in this case, the Blackfeet wrote their own plan of how they wanted to develop agriculture in a way that would serve their goals of environmental health for their land and public health for their people. And one of the things that they wrote into that plan that they've been working to develop is their own multi-species processing facility. And so this would be a place where they could process um, cows um, and they could also process bison. And it would allow them to, yeah, get out of that whole um, CAFO food chain, um, not ever have to send their animals to somebody else's, um, you know, slaughter facility or feedlot or any of that, but to be able to raise the animals on grass and Blackfeet territory their whole lives, and then process them in a way that's culturally appropriate and, you know, consistent with their own spiritual relationship with those animals. And then provide some of that meat back to their own community, but then also sell it um, in a way where they could tell the story, you know, that this was an animal that lived a dignified life, that lived in balance with land. Um, so that's quite exciting because um, otherwise uh, they don't have access to a facility um, to kind of finish that process. So um, cattle ranchers really all over Montana are sending their cows out um, at the end of the process. Mm -hmm. What happens um, when you, um, grazing animals, whether it's buffalo or cows, comes winter when there's not the vegetation. You know, you hear so often that, you know, they're, they're outside grazing, but then they're brought in and finished with grain for, because there's no food outside. How do, how do they deal with that in regenerative agriculture? Is there enough still out there in the winter that they can forage or do they need to be supplemented? 
Yeah, that's an interesting point because that was another thing that I learned in the course of kind of researching what's the difference between buffalo and cattle is that, um, you know, something Latrice brought up is that cows, they're from riparian areas. Like if you look at their evolutionary history, they're used to it being warm, to there being green grass and always having a lot of water to drink and just kind of hanging out where the good stuff is, (laughs) Um, Uh (laughs) which, you know, we all notice that's what cows do. And that's what sometimes people who manage for riparian health are trying to, you know, they're trying to fence them out of that. Um, whereas, uh, Buffalo, they actually, you know, they evolved with the North American prairie and its conditions, its weather conditions, um, its aridity, and they move a lot more and they are much less bothered by cold. They don't have to, um, they don't need as much access to water as often. Um, and so they're basically much better able to use the resources they have and get through the winter and also get through the hot summers without needing so much, um, kind of coddling because <laughs> they're from that landscape. They're used to it. They survived out there long mm-hmm. before there were people. <laughs> right. Right. Okay. So they can survive out there in the winter and find enough food and, you know, maybe their metabolism also slow down as other animals do and you know, not necessarily hibernate, but, you know, slow down, not need as much in the cold. It, very interesting. It's all a question um, of like how much land they have access to because historically, and this is kind of an interesting conversation that people are having is do we categorize Buffalo as livestock or as wild animals? Because historically they just roamed, you know? And so a a lot of indigenous people are advocating for, um, you know, like management agencies to see them as wild animals. But, um, you know, in the wake of their extermination, the way in which they've typically been brought back is on ranches that are just as small as they would be for cows. And so if they don't have access to roam and go find their food, then they're probably going to need more help. Um, but, but what Blackfeet Nation is working on in partnership with Glacier Park and Waterton Park, which is on the Canadian side, and there's also some public land that's forest service managed, there's, you could imagine kind of putting together um, through this patchwork of jurisdictions, an area that is large enough for Buffalo to graze in the way they historically did, um, which is going to be a game changer based on just managing buffalo within the same areas where cattle are grazing. Mm-hmm. And buffalo and bison are they the same? Uh, they forgive are. me if I don't know, but I just <laughs> yeah I thought so. okay I had to okay. put a parenthetical in that chapter. <laughs> Latrice joked to me once when we were talking. She was like, "Forgive me if I go back and forth between these terms because buffalo is the term you'll often hear in the indigenous community." And bison is a term you'll often hear in the scientific community. So the the scientific name of American bison um, is like bison bison, I think, or something like that. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. So in the scientific community, they think of buffalo as an animal that's actually in Asia. Um, But colloquially, buffalo is the term that indigenous communities use for the same animal. So it was kind of hilarious. You know, Latrice obviously lives in both worlds, so she kind of uses both both words. (laughs) Okay. Well, as a... A New Yorker in Long Island is, you know, I have no, and a vegetarian or vegan now, um, you know, I see bison meat available, you know, I see them packaged and I see buffalo meat or buffalo burgers, you know, it's like, this the same? Okay, thank you for clearing that up. Um, so there's some debate about the carbon capture capabilities of regenerative agriculture. 
What are people getting right? And what are they confused about in this solution? And we don't have a lot of time left. So I know that's a big <laughs> question. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do the quick version. This is actually kind of why I started researching this book. I was so confused by the fact that some of my friends and colleagues in the research community thought that regenerative agriculture could sequester a lot of carbon, like offset, say, 20 to 35% of human-caused emissions. There was a team that did something called the four per mil study of international researchers that calculated that. So on the one hand, you've got people that say, oh, yeah, you know, we could offset about a third of human-caused emissions through these regenerative agriculture techniques. But then you had a lot of other people who said, actually, I'm not sure we can sequester that much carbon at all. I'm not sure we can really offset any emissions with regenerative agriculture maybe this is really just more greenwashing by industrial agriculture and, you know, kind of a lot of smoke and mirrors. And so I was confused about that big gap between people mm -hmm. who in many other respects kind of agreed on the science around agriculture, who saw very different potential. And what I realized when I was researching this book is that people mean different things by regenerative agriculture. And so if what you mean is that we're going to continue the logic of the food system as it is, we're going to continue basically this extractive food system, but we're just going to graft on a few individual practices. We're just going to do a little bit of no-till. We're going to plant a few cover crops here and there that's not going to shift the climate situation. And there are, you know, folks out there who are branding that kind of approach as regenerative. On the other hand, you know, if you take the word regeneration to heart and you think, you know, what do we need to do to heal this extraction that's been happening over the past few hundred years? And this is the approach that I see communities of color taking and indigenous communities taking because they've been on the front lines of all this for so long. And this extraction is, is hurting their communities in so many ways. So if you really actually think about regenerating all of that colonial extraction, that is super powerful. That's an incredibly powerful climate solution. So I think what people are getting right is that regenerative agriculture can be a really powerful solution. But I think sometimes what people get wrong is imagining that you can do this end run around the social issues in agriculture, and you can somehow just in this very technical way, reinsert carbon atoms into the soil without having to deal with all this hard stuff like structural racism or land justice. And that's what's wrong. You can't solve the climate crisis without dealing with structural racism and land justice. And the good news is, you know, these can be synergistic efforts, you know, racial justice movements and climate movements have every reason to ally with each other for all kinds of reasons. But agriculture, I think, is one really powerful one. Mm -hmm. You know, although one one big problem is that the indigenous people and people of color are not in the powerful positions to make these changes happen, right? <clears throat> I mean, these, you know, these little bits of change that you're talking about is what's happening with white people in power, right? But in order to really make that shift happen, we need to see a change of the power structure so that it happens in a much bigger way. Right, so there is more synergy happening, and um, you know I don't see that happening quick enough to really impact what we need to do in the time frame that we have when we're talking about the, this climate crisis. You know, we already passed the 350 mark that Bill McKibben talked about how many years ago. You know, we're already up to I don't know what now, but you know we're in a real crisis, and 
we still have half of this country denying climate change even exists. So help me here. <laughs> it's a tough Give road. Oh, yeah. No matter how you slice it. Um, so you might as well, you know, do it the right way. Um, but for your listeners in New York, um, you know, you guys actually have this incredible community organization, um, Soul Fire Farm in upstate New yeah. York. Yeah. Yep. I mean, outside of Albany. Yeah. If you want to get inspired about what's possible, <laughs> check out what Soulfire is doing because they they're doing it on their own farm. They have this incredible regenerative farm. They've built so much soil carbon on that land um, since they got out there about 10 years ago, I want to say. Um, they're doing all this incredible educational programming. They're doing you know, culturally centered programming around regenerative agriculture. And they're also deeply involved in policy. Um, and have had an impact, um, have had a hand in helping ensure that there are bills before Congress that, uh, for example, would grant 160 acres to black farmers, um, that there are, you know, bigger visions of how we need to shift agriculture. So, yeah, I, I just encourage you engage with Soul Fire Farms programs. Um, they also collaborate with a bunch of other organizations in the area. Corbin Hill Food Project, which is right in the city. Um, Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, which I wrote about a little bit in the book, which is really specifically working on this challenge of land access and, and land sovereignty. Um, so you guys are just surrounded by awesome community organizations that that you can get involved in. Yeah, I agree. Um... So maybe you can just um, highlight just a little bit some of the research that um, A.D. Guzman is working on because um, you know she's really gathering information from a lot of immigrant farmers and kind of putting that together and how you know small plots. I mean, we all know that you know people think that you know the monoculture and industrial agriculture is needed to feed the world when in reality we. Those of us that know, know that most of the world is fed by small farmers. Um, so maybe you can talk to us just briefly before we run out of time about 80s work. Yeah. So, so I live and work in California. I teach at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And our big kind of industrial agriculture region is called the Central Valley. And it's where most of the, the country's vegetables are grown, which is crazy because it's actually a desert. <laughs> so it's a really long story of how, you know, irrigation was brought to that area. But that's where in California, you see these large scale monocultures and you see a lot of application of chemicals and all the sort of things we've been talking about with industrial agriculture culture. Um, so Ida Guzman was actually raised there. Her parents came as farm workers, but they had a small farm in Mexico that they had to leave because of all these, um, you know, economic reasons we've talked about sort of connected to colonization and the green revolution. So when she was young, I think she was nine. Um, she actually got to visit her family's small farm in Mexico. And she sort of saw this diversified small scale approach to agriculture that was embedded in the natural ecosystem. And there were wildflowers popping up in between the corn. And she was just amazed because growing up in the central Valley, she was like, you never see random plants anywhere. You know, basically everything is dead because of all the chemicals other than the target cash crop. So that, you know, contrast between the agriculture, her parents had sort of been forced to work in and were exploited by in the Central Valley. And then this small farm that they came from really struck her. And she, she became an agricultural scientist and um, she was doing her PhD at Berkeley. And she was looking at 
the connections between biodiversity above ground and biodiversity below ground. So she was doing soils field work and she was also doing observation of bees. Um, and, you know, basically what she learned, she found all of these small farmers in the Central Valley, mostly Mexican or Central American immigrants or Hmong immigrants who were growing in these diverse polycultures. So lots of different kinds of plants and their farms are generally like less than five acres, very small farms. Other researchers didn't even know they were there, but she did because right. she was from there and she had these connections in the immigrant community. And so she compared farms that had all these diverse plants with ones that just had one plant. And she found that the ones with all these diverse plants actually had two times as many types of something called arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which is a uh, a fungus that's really key to all these soil microbial processes that help sequester carbon and ensure soil health. So what her study showed basically is that if you have a diversity of crops, you can help cultivate a diversity of microbial life below ground, which is what helps with carbon sequestration and soil health. And the other interesting layer of it is that, you know, if you have the cultural diversity of people who have these cultural food plants, and that's why they plant such diverse crops, you know, that's part of the mix too. And so in a way, you know, she's demonstrating how these immigrant communities that often are discriminated against in the Central Valley are actually helping to rebuild the soil there. They're actually helping fix the problems um, with the Central Valley. And, you know, the, the sad part of that though, is that so many of the people who know how to do those things are in the same position her parents were, where they're working for this larger industrial scale farm and they don't have the opportunity to make decisions about what gets planted mm -hmm. and how and where. And so her work also, I think, is kind of a spur to all of us to think about land justice and how do we make sure those farm workers have the opportunity to become farmers and make their own decisions. Right. That's, again, what I was talking about, putting them in positions of power where some of these positive decisions and knowledge can come forward because... They're mostly, um, you know, kept down and they're not allowed to really be in the position of making the change that needs to happen. And we all need to really work on that because we need to get those messages out there. Um, you know, I mean, when you study mushrooms or the fungi, you know, like, you know, I remember this one experiment of putting, you know, chemicals into the ground and, you know, in like one second time, you could see it a half a mile away. I mean, it's just amazing how quickly you know, the the connective tissue underground moves things, you know, so, you know, it's, you know, it's amazing. So when you say they're helping the monoculture land as well, they are, you know, because it, it does move like that. But at the same time, all the bad stuff that the monoculture farms are putting in are contaminating the other soil, you know, go, they go both ways. So we really need to help bring that up. But thank you, your book, really is hopefully a lot of people read this and really we can get these messages out there because more and more people need to hear the indigenous folks stories and you know and learn from them because it is the wisdom that we need to come back to so thank you liz and everyone who's been listening to us during this um hour thank you so much for joining us and i'll see you all again